Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 are our text. I like to begin reading back at verse 9. Hebrews 4, 9 to 13. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his, God's rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us therefore labor to enter into that rest, lest any man fall short or fall after the same example of unbelief. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Father, we are so glad to come to this second hour this morning. And we are thankful for the privilege of labor together in holy care. And now we pick right back up on that as we come to the second hour of Hebrews 4 in which really we find glorious affirmation of the things already ministered in the fall of this day. Thank you for the occasion. We ask your blessing upon your people. We pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. There is a thing in law that is called cease and desist. You usually hear it as cease and desist order. It means that some judge in a court has given an order. And the order is cease, stop, and desist. Don't do anything. Not only stop what you're doing, but don't do that anymore. Cease and desist. A judge proclaims an order, and the order is cease and desist. Stop and no more activity like that. Well, in this text of scripture, you have an order from the highest court. The judge of all judges has given an order. And his order is not exactly the same as a judge. Listen for the difference. The high court of heaven has given us an order. And the order is cease and persist. Cease and persist. 
Stop. Rest. And then exercise yourself in activity. I don't think of two words that better characterize our text than the words cease and persist. Let me show you how I get there. Call your attention to the word rest back in chapter 3, verse 11. See it? And then again in chapter 3 and verse 18. See it? And then again in chapter 4 and verse 1, rest. See it? Verse 3, twice, rest, rest. Verse 4, rest. Verse 5, rest. Verse 8, rest. Verse 10, rest. Verse 11, rest. We told you last week that all those rests are the same and not the usual, and that you're seeing right in that text all of that word rest in the New Testament except for two places in the book of Acts. Now in English, we find the word rest again in verse 9. The thing that ought to jump off the page to the student of the scripture is that that word for rest is not the same. The ten other references to rest have a particular idea of Cease, stop, finish, complete. Last week we used it in the terms of a dad who says to a teenager, give it a rest. And the word rest, as found ten times in this section of the word of God, has that idea of give it a rest. When it comes to the soul, when it comes to your salvation, give it a rest. Give it a rest in the Lord. But the word rest in verse 9 is not the same. And it is a building word from a root in which we get the usual idea of rest in the Bible. Namely, Sabbath. And it would be wrong to translate the word rest in verse 9 as Sabbath. Because the word actually refers to Sabbath keeping. Sabbath keeping. Now think about those two words, Sabbath. What does that word mean? Cease. Keeping. What does that word mean? Persist. Here is a passage of scripture that is predicated upon the biblical truth of cease and persist. So we can read verse 9. There remaineth therefore a Sabbath keeping for the people of God. Now if I'd have known this years ago when I was working with the seven Adventists, I would have been glad to point it out in the scripture, but I didn't know it back in that day. But I surely know it now. And I can say, to build a sense of friendship with the seven-day Adventists, I can say to them, well, there is a sense of Sabbath-keeping that is absolutely a part of the believer's life today in Christ. Hebrews 4.9 talks about it. Don't say there's a Sabbath, in effect. 
it says that there's a Sabbath keeping in effect. There remaineth, says verse 9, therefore a Sabbath keeping to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he that is entered into the Lord's Sabbath, Baptists would say it, he who is saved, the person who is saved, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. Just like God ceased from his work of creation, Genesis, just as God the Son ceased from his work on the cross, it is finished. So the believer ceases from his work by resting in the Lord Jesus at the cross, at the cross, at the cross. Cease connects us to the cross. Rest connects us to the cross. Yet, verse 11 goes on to say, let us labor. Or may I say to you, let us persist. Okay, cease, yep. But now, the issue at hand for the believer is labor, persisting. The flurry of activity that comes out of one of the Lord's Sabbath. God's creation was cited previously, and we said that while God ceased after six days, hallowing the Sabbath, the seventh, that there is to be noted in the scripture a flurry of God's activity in the sustenance of man, and then after sin, the redemption of man, that the cease of God by no means is to be understood as doing nothing. And then we talked about Joshua previously, who leads the people into the land of promise and is engaged in the aspect of the conquest. And eventually they came to a day when they could say, in general terms, that they had rest in the land. And yet, while at rest in the land, uh, we know that there was a a flurry of God-ordained activity that would sustain Israel in that land and allow Israel to enjoy the blessing of the land. As promised. Uh, God's work, Genesis, was cease and persist. Uh, The work of Joshua in the land of promise was cease and persist. And here, the writer of Hebrews is saying to Jewish Christians in the first century who are under the gun of persecution, you dear people need to learn to cease and persist. Don't just rest on your heels in the glories of your salvation given to you exclusively by God in Christ at the cross. But labor to enter into that rest. Don't be like the Old Testament people who failed to enter into the rest that they had believed in by nature of their unbelief. And verse 11. 
And then of all the strange things to read on a Sunday morning are these very, very familiar verses of Scripture. For the Word of God is quick, powerful, and sharper. Now, just before we get to the familiar again, let me just take one more shot at verse 11. Let us labor, or to say it otherwise, from the original language, let us spudazzo. It almost sounds like something good to eat. <laughs> spudazzo. What would you like? Oh, I'll have spudazzo. Uh, no, spudazzo means to spare no effort. It means to do your very best. It means to work hard in direct response to a finished work. Spudazzo means to persist after coming to the soul's rest, to persist. God has not called you to be a sleepy Christian. He has called you to operate with great activity. You might have heard this in the last hour, uh, in holy care. The leading thought here is that following the accomplishment of God is always, is always, a flurry of appointed activity. Where Baptists fail the most is in the appointed flurry of activity. Many Baptists have the activity part. Not us so much anymore. But many Baptists have the activity part going on. But this is talking about the appointed activity. This is talking about cease and persist. As God has provided, as God has commanded us to cease and persist. We want to explore this morning three deliberate associations made here between the word of God and the promised rest from God for his people under the banner or the umbrella of this idea of cease and persist. We'll look at the associated description. We'll look at the associated discrimination We'll look finally at the associated disclosure of the word of God in relationship to all this. Again, verse 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and the marrow and is of a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in God's sight, his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. With whom we have to do. You and I have an appointment with God with whom we have to do. And in light of the appointment that we have with God, we are to persist as 
appointed. That's the basic concept. Notice in verse 12 the description of the word of God in this regard. The word of God is one, living. Two, powerful. Three, sharp. The word of God, like him himself, like God himself, is living. God, above all things, is alive. He's real. He exists. He doesn't just exist. He's always existed. He will always exist. The first and foremost thing we can say about theology is God is. He exists. He's living. He's powerful. And uh, uh, the word powerful here is, is wonderful in the English text, to be sure, but, but uh, uh, it, uh, it really, upon study, becomes even a little more glorious. Uh, for the word power here is not the usual, as you might think. God is alive and authoritative. That means that I'd be looking in the verse for ecousia. I'll be looking to see if the word powerful in verse 12 is some form of ecousia. And when I look, it's not there. So the truth that God is alive and authoritative, man, that's the truth. That's just not the truth of this text. You with me? Then we might say, well, God is alive and omnipotent. And if I take that thought to the verse, I'd be looking to see if the word power in verse 12 is some form of the Greek word dunamis, from which we get our English word dynamic from. It speaks of raw power, strength and power. And in that case, the truth of the text would be God is alive and omnipotent. And even our little tiny children in their little people's class on, on Sunday night are hearing about the sovereign, all-powerful God of heaven and earth. Uh, that's a great truth. Man, that's a great truth. I'm so glad it's being taught to our kids. I'm so glad it's being taught and believed among our adults. It's a great truth. It's not the truth of the text either. The word powerful is not ecousia. It is not dunamis. That would be the usual. Usual would be dunamis. Second to that, ecousia. And in this case, neither of the two. So now where are we? Well, the word powerful. What is the word? Ready? Energeo. English word? Energy. What is it saying? God is alive and active. He's active. He's energetic. That's the truth of God in this text. That's the truth of the word of God in this text. You see, that is the truth of God. And therefore, that becomes the truth of the word of God. The word is alive like God is alive. The word is energetic like God is energetic. That's the truth of the text. What are we being told in this familiar verse of Scripture. 
We're being told that the word of God is quick, life-giving. God is not living, he's life-giving. The word of God is life-giving. That's what the text is saying. For the word of God, that's what we're talking about. The logos of God is quick, life-giving, and energetic, and sharper than any two-edged sword. Three things there. The word of God is alive. The word of God is active. The word of God is sharp. Or if you will, the word of God is alive. The word of God is active. And the word of God is discerning. The description of the word of God here is a phenomenal description. Listen carefully. When we receive by faith the word of God, we become what it is. It is alive. It is active. And when we receive it into our hearts, we are alive and we are active as a result of our living and active God. The word of God is like the yeast that is stuck in the heart, the bread of the heart, creating the aspect of life and energy in the life of the believer. God's rest, God's cease and persist involves new life in Christ and energetic living of Christ within the soul of an individual. God's word is living and energetic. And so where would we ever get the idea that God's child could be anything else than living and energetic too? It's not enough to be saved. For whom he saves, he sanctifies. God is alive and energetic. His word is alive and energetic. And guess what ought to be true of all God's people? They're alive. And they're energetic. I'm just saying that's the truth of the text. Check it out. Study it out. It is a, a powerful statement of God, of the Bible, and of our lives. Secondly, notice the ability of the Word of God to discriminate or to discern between soulishness and spirituality. Verse 12 goes on to say, two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit of the joints and the marrow. And as a discerner of the thoughts and the intents, of the heart. In the secret world of personal intention, in the secret world of personal motivation, an awful lot of confusion and complication often reigns. The Word of God is so sharp so discriminating, so discerning that it possesses the ability to help the one who has it within to know the difference between the natural 
and the spiritual. The soul and the spirit. Now you take the best teachers we got here, and I'm not going to name those guys this morning, but you take the best teachers we got here, you take this preacher, you take all the best preachers you ever heard in your life, get them in a room, and say to them, define precisely soul and spirit, and they'll argue all day long. There isn't a man on the earth that can adequately describe the distinctive differences between the immaterial part of man, the soul, and the spirit. And yet the Bible, the great discriminator, the Bible, the living discriminator, the Bible, the living and active discriminator, has the ability to bring to an individual knowledge of the difference between I did that and God did that, between the natural man and the spiritual man. The word of God allows the believer to know the difference between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. That short two-sided sword that is used here in regards to illustration, of course, physically represented the, the Roman short dagger, sharpened on both sides that printed, uh, penetrated the body and would be used by the soldier to slash the vital organs, cutting, cutting easily through bones and muscle. And here that is being likened to the word of God, which has... Uh, penetrating power in the life of the believer to divide between the vile and the virtuous. When I look at the word of God and I examine my own life in the mirror of it, I know that the best thing I've ever done for God was not void of vile entirely. I've never lived a day yet without vile. You've never lived a day yet without vile. But it is the promise of God to me and it's the promise of God to you that we shall someday when Jesus returns. Amen? In the meantime, you got to be a thinking believer. I got to be a thinking preacher. And you got to think about what in your life is righteous and virtuous and what is vile? And sometimes you can't even hardly tell of yourself. Hence the great powerful reality of the word of God when read. The word of God when studied. The word of God when heard preached. The word of God when sung. The word of God when read. Is that it has the active living ability to divide between the soul and the spirit. It performs, as it were, a sense of spiritual surgery of sorts, allowing the believer to correctly judge even his own motivation and meditation of heart in likely activity and purposeful good works to the glory of God. What a phenomenal thing to think about the ability of the Word of God. And then... 
Thirdly, this morning, just think about the value of the Word of God in light of the coming day of disclosure. Verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in its sight. Is that what it says? No. What's it talking about? The Word of God. What do you think about? The Bible. What is verse 12 talking about? The Bible. What is verse 13 talking about? The Word of God. Is it talking about the Bible? No. What is verse 13 talking about? He's talking about the Word of God. His sight. So close is the Word of God written to the Word of God living. We gladly and Rejoice to proclaim the sinlessness of Jesus Christ, the perfection of Jesus Christ in every way. Amen? Likewise, we rejoice to proclaim the the sinlessness and the perfection of the written word of God in our hands. Amen? Word of God written, verse 12. Word of God living, verse 13. So close in description. So close in regards to disclosure that there is practically no difference between it and him. And so with a clear reference to the word of God as written, verse 12, you, you have this change of pronouns. that represents the reality of the word of God living. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him, capital H of course, with whom we have to do. The text shifts from the written word to the living word without the slightest break or change since both are indeed exactly the same. Perfect in communication, top to bottom, the word of God written, the word of God living. Let no one suppose that even the most secret of thoughts goes undetected by God's sight. We know that we are all to be fully exposed in the coming day of Christ. The phrase with whom we have to do is literally to whom we give our word. We have the word of God written, verse 12. We are told again of the word of God living, verse verse 13 in order that we might think about our own words, that someday soon, before our Lord, in the day of Bema judgment. There's a play on words here concerning the word of God and our word before him. We can possess and live in the confidence of God's eternal rest. Here and now, we can live the life of cease, And persist 
The key to the promised life and the activity from God is the Word of God. We cannot overstate its value. We all know what it is physically to be thirsty and undernourished. Somebody says to you, hey, you want to go play tennis? And you say, well, I got to get something to eat first. I got to get something to drink first. First I'll eat, then I'll drink, and then we can play tennis. Because you know that the activity of pouring it out requires the reality of bringing it in. And if you don't bring the water in, and if you don't bring the food in, if you don't bring the nourishment in, guess what? You're going to have no energy for tennis. Here's the way the Christian life works. You have to bring in the water of the word of God. You have to bring in the food of the word of God, the bread of life. You have to bring in the honey. You have to bring in the nourishment of the word of God into your soul, into your life. And if you don't, what you will fail to have is energy to live in any way right and to please God. You will just be alone with your miserable self. You will have no energy. So, I'm going to apologize for what I'm about to say because it's really corny, but these are kind of like the energy bar verses of the Bible right here. You just get the word of God, get yourself an energy bar, and chuck that baby down and <clears throat> get energized. How desperately this preacher needs the energy of God on this Sunday morning. And we'll need it during the days of this week. Oh, what a grace it is from the throne to know that God has given to us his word. It's alive. It's active. It's discerning. And if we will take it in and let it work its work within our souls... We'll find the energy to live a life that is pleasing to God. No one here would greatly desire to be alive on earth physically without possibility of activity. None of us here would choose to live a comatose life in a vegetative state. My dad, who is up in years, says to me almost every time I see him these days, Tim, if I can't take care of myself, I don't want to be here. while I would never use my dad's attitude as a commendation for the saints, I have to say I do understand that kind of thinking. I don't know anybody that wants to be here in a comatose state. 
So let me just ask you before we wrap up this morning, why then is that that so many of God's people think it's okay to be spiritually alive without any spiritual activity? Why is it that Baptists are so much about cease and so little about persist? I'm all for cease. We preach cease. We preach it is finished. We preach the cross. We preach I am saved. <laughs> But God has called us to persist. My persistence, your persistence before God is evident this Lord's Day morning. Let's make sure it continues. Let's make sure that as we're resting in the Lord Jesus, that that sense of activity, that sense of energy continues. Because indeed we are drinking in the blessedness of the word of God. Father, thank you for a great morning.